So we've come to the end of the year. I can't believe it. I was actually re-listening to some of the episodes from this year, and there were so many juicy nuggets of wisdom and insights from my guests that I decided to put together a special episode. I gathered snippets of some of my favorite things this year's guests have shared, and I believe they give us a lot to think about in terms of the different ways our sense of smell can have an impact in our life. Before we get started, I did want to take just a minute to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to how you spend your time. And the fact that you choose to be here with me and my guests for a little bit of your day means so much. Please know that. And if you've already rated the podcast, thank you. If you haven't but want to, I would be so grateful. It allows others to find the show too. At any rate, Happy New Year. I wish you all that you hope for in 2023, and I can't wait to share more exciting episodes about all things smell. For now, enjoy a compilation of the best of 2022. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. Episode 53, Smell Everything with Lula Kurioka. When I say that to me, smell everything, not because being obsessive with something, which is also good. I'm a little bit of an well, obsessive we are person. Obsessive. But... <laughs> Let's be honest. You and I are a little obsessive. But, but I mean, I'm not trying everybody to be like right. that. We don't make everybody <laughs> else do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it's more a way to connect with what you have in front of you. Basically, it's to me, two, two things. One, connect with your presence. We're so mental. And I'm really, I'm so mental. I live in my mind. It's so difficult to me to come back to my body. So it's even funny. I am a perfumer because it's, it's hard to me. And, and this has been a therapy to me, the act and the mantra of smell everything. Lula, you're here. You're not there in your mind, in your ideas, in your clouds, in your theories. No, no, no. That's okay. That's good. But you're here. What is, what's going on in here? And connecting with how, how does it smell right now? It's a way in a very immediate way to connect with your presence. And in a very digital era that we live in and the era of information, no, which is beautiful, but it, it just um, take us apart from ourselves. So yeah. to me, it's one thing that to stop a second and just feel and smell what's going on right now, right here. No judge, no nothing, nothing. Just smell it. Just no? experience and it. Just have an experience. It. Yeah. And then continue with what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's perfectly fine. But the other um, side of why 
smell everything is a mantra to me because I think it's very important to create a personal um, glossary of what smells, different smells mean to each of us. So it's not just smell it. Okay, but what what's that telling you? And and we were saying it minutes ago, it will be different to what it's that smell is telling to you and to the neighbor and to your mom. So this way we start creating a personal language and not being just uh, led by again what smells good what smells bad no it's like armpits i love armpits because <laughs> because and not every armpit and that's it. you know that's it it's let's not fall in generalizations about everything let's not generalize nationalities cultures smells so let's go to the personal to the individual and create a personal opinion, a personal experience. So you can create that by listening to what other told you. You have to experience it. You have to put your nose there and feel what you, whatever you have to feel. And then say, oh, well, this to me, this smell means to me this, or at this period of my life is meaning this to me. Okay, so then we start having a conversation about smells without just, again, generalizing. So yeah, that would be smell everything to me. Episode 44, Smelling Raw with Rachel Binder. Like the idea then being that tuberose is only allowed to be what you want tuberose to be. And to me, the art begins when you can present a real tuberose as it's never been smelled before. That to me is interesting. Like that's the direction of my art. So I could never sign something that says, you know, it has to be there, blah, 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 because, you know, a lot of people don't even know what variety of oud can smell like, much less the huge variety of sandalwood or cedar or redwood, or, you know what I mean? Or, or different fruits, you know, um, like all the world of mandarins. And so if we're only going on people's assumptions, we're really limiting ourselves and our experience and our appreciation of, of the natural world. It's only when we're trying to make things in a factory that it needs to be, this is tuberous. Well, exactly. I was just going to say, if you're making a perfume that you're going to supply to thousands of people, you need the consistency, right? So you're always looking well, to standardize. No. And uh-uh, No, you don't. And this is what I have to say okay. about that. All right. Ask- Ask uh, the greatest champagne makers in champagne. Ask the the premier crew, Bourgogne okay. makers. Ask them about consistency and how that would destroy their winemaking uh, techniques because they're there to celebrate. This is what it is this year. Oh no, no, I'm saying this that's is what true. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm saying that's what they're like. But the they fragrance still- industry like tells you that it's all standardized. If you get a Chanel yeah, number right, five, right. that's what I'm trying to say. It's like oh, you want a Chanel number five, it's got to smell the same way because somebody buying it 30 years later, and of course there are changes because of regulatory changes and they have to take ingredients out and stuff like that. But that's the beauty of natural versus synthetic no. And, no. And, and the standardization versus working with nature. 
and what's what it what it's meant to tell you and what it's meant to represent. But you you talk about all the seasons basically is what you're saying. The seasons, the diurnal shifts, the how soil. year by year things can be different. You know, like in over time, even in a region or an area, you know, things um, are and can be different. And celebrating the differences instead of trying to make everything cookie cutter. And you see this with grower champagne in champagne right now. For example, there was a big, you know, like let's get all about the growers that kind of went on, right? And then you had, and it's very competitive, um, as you can imagine, particularly yeah. for growers. And then you had a group of people who wanted, you know, kind of took the lazy way out, which is a more factory viewpoint of champagne. And those businesses kept going under because they couldn't compete because you cannot have the same quality. And unless you have a, a rapper and a music video and a huge ad buy saying that it's great champagne, but for things like grower champagne where the focus really is the quality, you, you just saw people folding left and right when they tried to go to some of those sort of factory made things. And I believe, and I hope to see the future of natural perfume look a lot more like a lot of regenerative farming um, that allows us to treat perfume and natural perfume more like wine and get real naturals into the hands of pe hands of people that are not just um, these totally isolate driven um, things because I think that that plant medicine that aromatherapy that like that spiritual and, and energetic imprint is so important and I think it's something we've kind of lost uh, with the prevalence of everything sort of being under this industrial revolution kind of yes um factory yes. worldview um and i think it's something people really need you know need and i i see it shifts like i have a friend who wears uh this specific rasa of mine this you know one vintage and i try to tell him hey like a year in this next one will be just as good but you know like it has to be a year old like i'm trying to but he's like but no but this one is the one that makes me feel this certain way you know and it's, that's the mystery of it that I love. And that's that, like, you can make somebody feel because the materials from an aromatherapeutic standpoint, et cetera, just are giving, giving people that much. And so um, I, I think it's something the world needs. Like, I think something that something yes. society needs and particularly in the United States, everything's been so synthesized that some larger enjoyment of these natural materials, I think can just absolutely be life-changing for people. Episode 43, Smelling History with Caro Verbeek. So why do you think it's so important for us to understand smells in history? What, what richness can it provide that mm. we're not getting just by going to a museum now and continuing as we are now? What, what, what dimension does smell bring? Um, well, we all know, we just talked about it, that smells elicit early childhood memories, but I think they can also evoke collective memories. Um, so from our own uh, lives, from our own childhoods that we collectively experience, I don't know, maybe going to church or going to the seaside or having a certain, eating a certain dish, which changes every decade. Huh? Um, every decade, other dishes are popular. Yeah. Uh, but I think it can even connect us to a past that we haven't experienced ourselves to elicit um, a historical sensation. This is a term by a um, Dutch cultural historian, Johan Huizinga, and he describes the historical sensation as when you 
experience a tactile impression, music or a procession. So when you really experience something from the past that's reenacted, mm -hmm. not only do you feel more connected to the past, you also get a glimpse of what it was like. So you also get more knowledge about the past. And I sent historians debate about this. Is it really true? Is it just experience or is it also knowledge that you can gain? I think you can definitely also gain knowledge. I agree, I agree. Experiencing. Uh, experience can inform knowledge and the other way around. Once I've experienced sense that are described in historical texts, uh, I, I'm better able to recognize olfactory elements in texts. And I know, okay, they mentioned patchouli. I know that it's very earthy and sharp and that it has a large uh, reach, a large volume. Yeah. And all those things are important to know. And those um, characteristics are trans-historical. So 300 years ago, someone would have described patchouli as earthy and sharp as well. Of course, the connotations and the associations change, but that doesn't mean that we cannot um, smell on a more formal level, describing sense, linking those to historical, those descriptions to historical texts, etc. I hope I make sense. <laughs> oh, no, no, it does make sense. It does make sense. Um, I was going to ask you, how do you even research historical smells? If you can't physically go and smell an artifact how do you what's your process how do you go about um yeah researching smells because there's yeah. not a lot of literature on it right as you said more and more uh, we oh there is okay we go through an olfactory renaissance when it comes to history lots of history books about smell appear the past two oh. years quite a few really? so uh, lucky us yeah, uh, yeah. I study the recent past as well. For my PhD, I studied the role of smell in futurism. Futurism was an, uh, an art movement um, between 1909 and 1945, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so many, they, they wrote a lot of manifestos and letters. I looked at photos to see if I saw any olfactory elements. That's also something you can do, of course. Um, but in those letters and manifestos, sometimes they mentioned perfumes, perfumes that are, that are out of fashion. But then I collect old bottles and old recipes, and I worked with IFF, mm -hmm. and they did gas chromatography on those old perfumes. They used common sense to find out, okay, these top notes go together with these heart and these base notes because the top notes are, of, co of course, by long gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something uh, that we did. And sometimes they mention really simple scents such as Brazilian coffee. Actually, that was a scent mentioned by Marcel Duchamp for his 1938 exhibition. Uh, yeah, roasted Brazilian coffee beans. Um, or in 1942, the Surrealist exhibition apparently smelled of cedar. I don't know which type of cedar, but I think since Marcel Duchamp smoked a lot of cigars, uh, that it's the pencil cedar because that's what used what's used for the boxes to um, carry cigars, uh, and and that way, yeah, you can you can figure out a lot about smells. Uh, and of course, when you display them in a museum, you always communicate to your audience, um, hey, this is historically informed, maybe it's not exactly the same, but this is the context, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And I think it's always more true to reality uh, to then make people smell cedar, even though you don't know which one. Uh, uh -huh. You make an informed guess. It's more informative than not having any smell in that exhibition, because that would be even more violent to uh, historical reality. It also makes people aware of, hey, artworks had smells. And uh, already in, in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And I'm always just looking at odorless pictures. This is not right. <laughs> so that's what I would like people to become aware of. Episode 51, Democratizing Scent with Saskia Wilson-Brown. A good friend of mine, actually, David Casey, gave me a book by uh, by Chandler Burr, uh, the the Emperor of Scent. Oh yeah, about, yeah, yeah. About Luca yeah. Turin, who's since become a, a pretty good friend of mine. But um, yeah, so Chandler's book, I read it, and I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is this bizarre industry? You know. And bear in mind, you know, Frauke, you know, within all this, I'm, st you know, I'm an artist. You know, that's that's who I, I that's who I am. You know, yeah. that's who I will be and remain. Remain. That's the core so, of you, yes. That's yes. the core of me, you know. So, so there's always this idea, also, of like, well, how can you apply this creatively? You know, how can you? So, there's the social justice aspect of it, or the the sort of righteousness, the pompousness, you know, the the stuff that people roll their eyes at, you know. But then there's also, you know, a simple curiosity for for me of like, well, what can you do with this that's not perfume, you know? Um, so, so it was a couple of things combining, but that book really exposed me to how. Well, you know, Chandler's uh, amazing version of how the industry works and through the lens of Luca, who is, you know, a, <laughs> yeah, a, an amazing, brilliant um, skeptic, you know, I mean, he is yeah. at the core, a skeptical person. And that just, I, I like that, you know, I really, it appealed to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Makes total sense. I mean, you actually say smell is a human right. I do. Yeah. Well, working well, my little, my little line is this, <laughs> I, I repeat it so much that I feel like I'm, I feel stupid when I say it, but you know, no. if, if creativity is a human right, and if working with scent is a creative process, then it would follow that working with scent is, is a human right. So it's, it's very simple, you know, um, but we, we have a right to, to express ourselves creatively. I think, you know, I believe I totally it's sort of agree. a, yeah. yeah, it's a fundamental aspect of who we are, you know, talking, interacting with people, expressing ourselves creatively. It's, it's just, it's the core of humanity, you know? So, mm -hmm. so if everyone's going around saying perfumes and art, perfumes and art, well, then why the heck are we stopping? Why the heck are we setting up structures that, that stop people from engaging in this quote art? You know, it's ridiculous to me. So, yep. and I understand it's complicated, but that, that's sort of the core, the core tenet of what led me to, to engage with perfume was that belief, you know, and it remains my core my core belief right now, you know. Today. No, I think it's I think it's it's spot on. Um as you know, I was in the fragrance industry for yes, a while. And so I, I saw it from the inside. And um I think it's it's one of the things as it relates to just smelling in general, one of the things that I always found so I don't know, tough or interesting, if you will, when you're on the inside is that <laughs> There's this feeling like if you smell something, you might get it wrong. That what oh, you smell might be wrong. There's such a, like a, I don't know, maybe some people in the industry don't feel that way, but I think that a lot of us did, you know, you're kind of like, okay, only the Self perfumer doubt. knows what's right. Yeah. And everybody else, if you, you know, if I meant, if I said, oh, this smells like this or that to me, 
I would be nervous to say it because yeah. what if, what if I said it wrong? Like this idea that there even is something that's right or wrong <laughs> with totally. smelling. It's so funny. I mean, I was just, I was just talking, I was just teaching yesterday and I was saying that exact thing. Like, like, like smelling is like a fundamental aspect of our person, of our personhood, you know, yes. how could you possibly get it wrong? You know, I mean, but I mean, that's, but that's, that's like, that's like humans in society. Like we're afraid of making asses, I'm sorry, fools out of ourselves, you know? So you I mean, that. I do it, you know, I'll say things and I'm like, oh gosh, did I say, you know, did, are people going to judge me? Be like, Saskia doesn't know what the hell she's talking about, you know? And, Why and is in that fairness, in the back of our mind? It's like, well, it's because like... in fairness, bracket, people do judge, you know, people oh, do jump true. down each other's throats, especially in perfume. There's so much online, oh. like, well, so-and-so is not a real perfumer because blah, blah, you know? Oh. Yeah. What does that even mean? That drives oh, me I don't, nuts. So silly, but it, but it happens. Whatever. You're absolutely right. It and it happens a lot. Yeah, it does. You know, so I mean, it's normal that we feel a little apprehensive, but uh, yeah, but but I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I get things wrong all the time. You know what I mean? Like, it's just normal, you know, like, yeah. and and also what is wrong, you know, I mean, I get things that are that make sense to me but that don't make sense to anybody else. And that's cool. You know, I mean, I actually I embrace people who will say what they what they actually feel about a scent. And I'll be like, that's so interesting. Like to me, it's an opportunity to see another perspective. Yeah. Like, why facet. does that person, where do they get that, that aspect of that scent from? That's so interesting. Let me smell it again. And okay. I can't see that, but yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I totally agree with you. It's more but it's like telling someone, like someone looks at a, a gray box. Like I'm looking at a gray box here on my, on my desk of a perfume, yeah. you know, a uh, package. And I see a gray box with a little golden crest on it. And, you know, I don't feel any hesitation in telling you that, but you may look at it and maybe for you, it's more of a purple gray, a heather gray. And I'm like, well, no, it's more of a red gray or whatever. And we can have like a, a funny debate about it because it, it does not matter, you know, yeah. because we're confident in expressing ourselves visually, right? Yeah. Like I know that whatever I think I see is fine. Right. But with smell, I think, I mean, this gets back to sort of the, the you know, the, oft spoken about quote secrecy of the perfume industry you know there is this sort of degree of remove the that we have from it and maybe this gets back to your first question in this whole chat you know this idea of it not being engaged with enough that we get that level of of olfactory confidence that we have with visual or or auditory or or, you know or touch you know um and, and we just haven't been trained in that way as and also and also in fairness, there's something very difficult about expressing ourselves about scent. It's really, really, really hard, you know. It and is I, really I think hard. It's, I think it's. I think it's biological. You know, it's just we just cannot speak about scent. Episode forty-seven: Opening Hearts and Minds Through Scent with Therese Western. I have actually five fragrances in my line, and they're really something I really put a lot of thought and heart and time into. So again, I always start with an ingredient. You know, I've always been a fragrance lover. I've always loved lavender and I was very ambitious. I started with ingredients that are very polarizing. You know, most people love lavender or hate lavender. It's true. Yeah. So I'm like, what can I do with lavender? That's, you know, we know lavender has, you know, Provence and it's known, you know, in the Southern part of France. And we know about the, the note. But what can I do to bring some little, some soul, some texture, some context lavender? So I actually have two lavender fragrances that I've reimagined. I've got the Moresse lavender, which I'll talk about. And then I also have Langston lavender 
in Tweed, which is a dedication to Langston Hughes, which is a Harlem Renaissance writer. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll talk about Maurice Lavender since you have an interest. So I was able, I'd be like, okay, I know from my family history that goes back, I mean, I have ancestors that were traveling in the 1900s to Europe. You know, I know black people were a part of culture all over the world, yes. just weren't amplified. So yes. I just happened to research, okay, African French noble women. And I stumbled upon these stories. I actually stumbled upon a professor that's done a lot of research about African noble women. I reached out to her and I learned about two African French noble women in the 18th century. So this fragrance is devoted to them very quickly. They kind of had a little tragic lives. So we know lavender is used as an ingredient for peace and calming. Mm -hmm. So this is my tribute for them because they had so much turmoil. One woman is named Louise Marie Therese. She is the documented birth daughter of Marie, Queen Marie Therese of Spain, who was the wife of King Louis XIV of France. This is documented. If you go on my website, you will see the photograph of her. It's a painting depiction. But anyway, um, there is documented in historical records that the Queen of France, Marie Therese, gave birth, and it's documented to a dark baby who was quickly banished from the palace. And she lived in a convent on Moray, M-O-R-E-T. -E and she was known as the uh, Mores of Moray. So Mores comes Mores from the rest. Yeah, Mores of Moray comes from the word more. So more was used to describe dark people okay. in the northern part of Africa, people of dark complexion. So the Mores is the feminine um, connotation okay. to the name. But records show that if after uh, that records show that King Louis the Fourteenth paid three hundred dollars at that time every year to this convent to her, there are visitation records that show that he would come to the convent and visit her, and you know though she was in isolation and you know had some challenges, she would always talk about her brother, which was the Sun King. And it was, you know, hidden from the history. So I just kind of channeled, you know, what type of anguish can that be that you are not recognized? You know, what mm -hmm. kind of turmoil must that be? Yeah. The other person that she's paired with is Orika, and that's O-U-R-I-K-A. Okay. And during that time in the 18th century, many French aristocrats would travel to Africa and you know, take you know an African child almost like a pet. So French aristocrats would have you know little African children, but this was unique because this family, the Debeau family, um, she was actually not necessarily like a pet. I mean, she was raised like a member of the family with the finest uh, clothes, exposed, educated, you know, traveled. However. When she got older and she wanted to marry, you know, she was not able to marry someone of her peer, you know, someone white European, and that caused her great anguish 
in turmoil. Like she died very early. I think actually she had a mental, you know, breakdown in sanity. But anyway, I imagined wanting to give a tribute to them to have such deep angst on really not being accepted, being almost, you know, not being totally loved. So this is a pure lavender fragrance. It does have uh, Palo Santo in there. Mm. So this is a fragrance um, to give you, to give them peace, the peace that you all, we all hope for and cling for mm. in our lives. Episode 49, Exploring Olfaction in Nigeria with Diola Abella Paulinyang. It's interesting when you say that, very true, a lot of our experiences with, with fragrance or perfumes or what it, whatever we choose to call it has been very Eurocentric. A lot of people whose exposure to perfumes, they've been, expo me, they've been exposed to perfumes more from what they've seen imported in. So when you ask somebody, oh, what, what kind of sense do you like? I love lavender. And the lavender they're talking about is really from a product. Yeah. So not really a personal expression, not a personal contact or connection with the scent itself. So when we've asked a lot of people, what does Africa smell like? It's been quite intriguing because many people don't really, it's not something they think about so deeply, like what does Africa really smell like? And I also had to ask myself that question. Beyond what I was exposed to, what does this really smell like? What does, what does my home really smell like? When I get out of the street, what does it smell like? So it got into a place where we, we, we want to encourage people to think with their noses and smell with their brains, right? I love and it. And those curated elements, so I could, right now I'm working on something which is called, um, it's called OFI, O-F-I. It's the, it's a native, all right, a dialect way of saying something we call the Ashoke, which is the, the cross for the upper echelon. That's the way we would say. And that particular cloth is like a cotton weave. It, it has loops and it's been, it's been, it's evolved over time in how it's been expressed. So it's, it's now being used more for weddings, you know, and all what we call um, the community outfit, Ashwebi. It's okay. called Ashwebi. It's a community outfit. So it's evolved over time in usage in that way. But the real the real ash the real ashoka or the ofi it was woven heavy used with a certain kind of cotton and it had a very interesting kind of smell the smell is is quite peculiar that i remember it from my grandmother's um chest her chest um boxes and then I did a sample of it and I made other people smell it. And I said, what does this smell like to you? And a lot of people, it said, it's taking me back to the village. It's taking me back to um, my grandma. It's, it's reminding me of my grandma's um, closet. That's the way, you know, it was. And I said, 
I'm creating the very cloth called the ash, okay, that you'll remember. It has this camphora smell. Ah. <laughs> it, it's just interesting. So you see, when we're now asking those questions about what does Africa smell like? These are the little things that I want to be able to pick out so that you can really appreciate what our culture is and our people and our creativity feels like. Episode 70, Smellscapes with Dr. Kate McLean. Only because it forms a part of the impressions that we have of the city it forms it's we experience the world through five senses we just don't note them down and to be able to just slightly carve off and dissect into a modality that we don't normally talk about means that you have a chance to approach somewhere that you think you know afresh and understand it in a new way and yeah. I think that's really what smell does is it, it I work with populations who live in those cities it's not me going in and saying this is what's here because I'm not qualified to do that it's not my territory my home I work to interpret what other people say about the smells of their cities and in return, what I give them is a way of understanding their city and appreciating it in a new and different way. And that might be just by slowing down. It might be by noticing something they hadn't noticed before. Yeah. But it, it's all about that. What's their connection with their, their city through smell? I love that. I love that. I think there's... We might talk about this more on the mapping side, but because I love maps. I'm a big collector of I, I collect like underground maps of, of you know of, of tube stops and things like that do you I hope you've got, you can't oh, see her face hope... but she's going what <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to send you one <laughs> yeah you need to send me one I mean I have I yeah I, so I have different cities I just collect maps but that's again visual so I love all the you know you have a lot of this online some of your your pictures of different cities of all the smellscapes that you you've um collected and it's fascinating it's so different i think it's going to be really helpful for history too if i think about how it can do good you know in yeah. general it's yes. not just for the love of doing it or for art i think it actually can serve a purpose too would you agree I think, I mean, the other part of it, one of the reasons why I do it, I mean, it came as a sort of like a later part of why I do it, is to actually record olfactory heritage. And it's, I mean, I always said I wanted to be the flicker of smells. Yeah. So we can record photographs that say how somewhere looked. We can record audio that we can digitise and that can tell us what somewhere um, sounded like. We can collect items and artefacts and we can sort of like do recipes for food and yeah. create tastes and we can actually sort of like bury seeds away but smells are one thing that we we can't do it in exactly the same way oh. we can Bleeding. take molecules we can recreate simpler versions and that's really successful and there's interpretation of smells which is are absolutely amazing and I work with them a lot but in terms of a city, it's that contextual information that goes with it. 
Yeah. So a smell in a city in time. is never, yeah, isn't a smell in a city is never just a smell. A smell yeah. in a city has so many other elements that are coming into it. It's the smell of the background of the city. It's the smell of somebody passing by. It's the smell of something else happening. Yeah. There's very rarely solitary single smells in a city, even with one breath. And wouldn't you also say even what you're hearing influences what you're smelling? So if it's really loud yeah. somewhere, if it's really quiet, yeah. you're going to interpret that smell differently. Absolutely. It's all the cross-modal stuff that suddenly comes into being. So it's it's cross-modal and sort of like greater context. And I think as a result of that, the smell maps just have a potential by the choice of the graphic language that I use to create archives and perceptions of the olfactory components of our cities testified by a local audience. It's mm. the people who live there that have actually recorded those. Or what I've done is I've interpreted them visually so that they are recorded. Episode 48, An Archive of Curious Scents with Mandy Aftel. That's what I love about your museum, which I've been to three times, coming up to four now, now that I know there's this new Oud <laughs> exhibit. Oh, it'd be so neat to have you I'm come out soon. connected this way. I'd love that. Yeah. Yes, yes. But I just think everything in there, you know, you, you walk in, and I know it's changed since COVID. I came before COVID hit, and I know you had to change things up a little. Now you can go in the garden, which I love before it wasn't so much the garden but it's this multi-sensorial thing it's like you said it's about touching too it's and it's about really experiencing the real stuff I think you probably get a lot of people who are surprised at what things smell like because they just have this abstract idea based on the products yeah, they I might buy it. I love watching them in there yeah. I don't know if these people that come are somewhere like very mean people but I swear to god they are so nice and happy when they're in there I just feel like what a parade of good people they are so <laughs> excited they first of all they walk in the door we move we've got more stuff now than we used to have because I was a maniac collecting we now have a real pomander from the 16th century too we have a wow a jeweled pomander really spectacular um so we have lots of stuff and when they open the door that you know the big six foot um whale for the Amber's exhibit is right by the door now so uh -huh. they open the door and I love it they go oh <laughs> 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 when they because it's you just can't imagine what it is and then they get in there and they're happy and they're appreciative and they're so say such nice things to me and they also they come back I'd say half of our visitors are repeat visitors yeah they come, I believe they come it. back with their family, they're yeah. excited, they're happy. You know, we, we just recently had a man come in a wheelchair with his attendant, and he was just thrilled. You know, people are just, for that slice of time, I feel like they're happy, and I get to be a part of it, and they, they I feel like, here's what I feel. I feel like they have the experience that I had when I fell into this. Like I'm recreating like how completely excited I was when I found it and how excited I am, how it lifts my mood, it makes me not depressed, how much it's done for me, the beauty of all this, this beauteous world that is 
the, that the natural aromatics are a through line, but all these auxiliary, you know, paper, books, things that you can fall into that are imaginative. So I feel like we're connected. Me yeah. and people there, I'm having the same experience. So it's the best thing for me I ever did. You know, I love yeah. it. Each time I went, I brought somebody and I, I brought people who aren't that connected to, to yeah. sense and smelling. And, and now they are more, you know, you kind of, you get people who otherwise are not thinking very much about scents or fragrances or oud or, you know, natural materials. And I, yes. so I get, I get people who are really, you know, deep into perfume and yeah. stuff, but I get people who, you know, have no idea at all. Right. You know? And, and they're so changed, you yes. know, when they leave and they so are welcome to my world. And I, I kind of love that. And I feel in that way, it sort of spreads, you know, yeah. this thing I found to more people. And, and also, I just feel the relentless marketing that goes on is such a deterrent to people's joy. Yeah. And they, that they encounter this without, you know, being marketed to or at or anybody being on a soapbox or putting down synthetics or any of the rest of it. It's just joyful. And particularly during COVID, I've just seen a lot of that go mm -hmm. on. And so I, I love Saturdays when we see people and we see, met everybody in our neighborhood, you know, and people also plan their trips to come. It's, it's, I had no idea it would be so much fun. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 45, Testing and Diagnosing Olfactory Health with Valentina Parma. I think about just how I have two children and when they get tested at a young age, right? You get tested for everything else, your hearing, your sight. Okay, you don't get tested for touch or taste, but, um, but you know, the big things that I think smell is a big thing. Uh, and, and it would be a dream if they could have a little easy, rapid test to kind of guide at least. It's not, it's not a diagnosis as such, but it's a guide, would you say? Absolutely. And that's what we want to change at Linnell, precisely that, because throughout our life, you know, most of us will have, really, the vast majority of us will have a vision check, a hearing check, but we never, we never get to the smell check. And we do know that, you know, monitoring your sense of smell can predate changes in your motor system and, you know, predict like with ears almost a decade early Parkinson's disease or it can help us contextualize cognitive changes that are related to dementias and Alzheimer's disease. Let alone, you know, COVID, it's another big example where it's an infectious disease, like it can help us monitor uh, the spread. Or, you know, I, I've done some work with kids with autism spectrum disorder and, you know, monitoring their smell and trying to use smell in the context of 
treatment can actually help you know reduce some of the or address some of the social you know difficulties that the, these children are experiencing but if we don't even think about smell in the context of health to detect disease to monitor disease to intervene on the course of the disease then we're not gonna even you know start identifying this these options yeah i mean it just it makes my head explode thinking of the possibility if every single doctor, no matter what their discipline is, if every single one of them just somewhere in their minds also thought about smell, it would be a beautiful thing. I know. And we think Sentinel, it's a good starting point, right? If every doctor's office, you know, Sentinel is self-administered. So I can be in the waiting room. I can actually take my test the doctor can read the results of the test with me and help me interpret that, then this is not going to basically, you know, take up any more time of the visit and will still include the monitoring of your sense of smell and it's going to go in your chart. And so your medical records could actually look at your performance of this test and we can see a decline perhaps over time. So that becomes yeah. a red flag that we want to address with a more thorough analysis of what's going on with your sense of smell. So that's that's our dream at Monel. We really would like everybody to go and ask their doctor, you know, why are you not giving me a sense of, you know, a, a smell Ask test? for it. Say, I need this test. <laughs> yeah, be curious about it. Because the other thing is that the majority uh, of doctors, at least from anecdotal reports from our patient community, they're not, you know, they don't even know what what to respond and some of the anecdotes that I, that i that i have heard of are you know people are really saying well you know you have already the other senses the smell is not that important so just don't be bothered and i'm just like you cannot say that i know it just drives me nuts <laughs> but it's true and it's, it's unfortunate yeah it's unfortunate so let's put it that way having these tools as easy as they are they could actually help people feel more comfortable in, you know, realizing that the sense of smell is important. And it, their, their doctor may start asking like a few questions about it, or at least know where to direct people. Not everybody should become a smell doctor at this point, but yeah. we can we can direct like uh, everybody who needs it to the people that are going to be able to address the problem. Episode 46, Anosmia Awareness with Jacob Lamandola. So tell me, how can people who can smell, how can they help the anosmia community? How can mm. we help you? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think like, you know, my, my instinct is like, well, answers are like really helpful because, um, but I don't know that there are answers. Like I was born seven weeks early. So I've always assumed that maybe that was the reason why I can't smell. Um, I think for con for congenital anosmia, like some sort of serious <laughs> investigation into why or how it can even be helped or reversed or, or like there, there might be some of that would be interesting because I do look it up on the news every once in a while and it's very rare I'll see any, maybe I'm not looking in the right places, but um, <sighs> Yeah, it's like that's just the awareness of it, I think, actually, is maybe I'll keep the answer simple. The awareness, I think, is really a special thing. Because um, as you said, it's like a lot of people aren't, they don't even know there are other people out there. So I think the awareness is even just the word anosmia is like, 
it's it's like saying blind or deaf, you know, um, like to, to say that you're an anosmic. So I think just having the word out there is is simple enough as, as a request. <laughs> like, um, right. <laughs> Because uh, even when you say the word, it, it sounds so alien, but it's like just as simple as the others. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. Awareness, I think. Would it be helpful for us to describe things for you? I, I love personally, I get no greater joy than hearing my friends describe things. I think it's it's amazing because they're so bad at it. But I, I think it's, uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like uh yeah it's just so funny like when people describe this the thing with the words that it is so it's just yeah that doesn't make any sense but i uh yeah no i it's helpful i i think sure it's it, it's interesting for me and fun uh i love hearing how people describe smells especially smells that i'm curious about um yeah i think it's great i think uh i think so too yeah yeah i, for, I forgot to also ask you so do would you have any i don't know insights for any parents out there who are listening who have small children who want to kind of make sure you know does my child can they smell or can they not smell are there any clues that if you look back on that now that would be helpful to parents that they could look out for i think one of them sounds seems to be like put something that stinks a lot under their nose right yeah, that was that seemed I, to have helped your mom be like oh this is real yeah i i would say asking questions about sense is probably just like what does that smell like to you even is probably a question that had my parents asked me i wouldn't i they probably would have known something was up okay. from a younger age um because i know that with with young children even clapping or like snapping their fingers around their ears like there's there's things to do to test senses but smells too i think just asking um what that smells like or do you smell that just to see I, I just get the conversation flowing a little earlier and maybe that'll kind of lead although I, I do think it's maybe it's less rare than I think but um like growing up I only knew one other person in college who couldn't smell episode 52 on being a designated nose so on a day-to-day -day basis, what are some of the, as a designated nose for anybody who's living with somebody with a smell dysfunction, I wanna go around and ask you all, what are some of the day-to-day -day roles and responsibilities you take on as, as being a designated nose, right? So what so that others who are also going through that, what are the things that they can also do? I'd love to hear some tips and, and tricks for what you do to, to support your, um, your anosmic or parosmic. Let's start with Marky. Well, as I said, Dia already had a system. She's, you know, she's had the uh, kitchen almost catching on fire, but she had a good alarm cat. That's way before I knew her. Okay. She got rid of all of her gas appliances. It's That's all huge. electric. Okay. Yeah. She could blow herself up or she could just asphyxiate because she cannot smell that odor of gas. And so what I do uh, since I'm a bit of a handyman, you know, if there's a, if I see an issue with say an electrical outlet, I'll just have to get that fixed. She can't smell it. If it's arcing, I can, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah. She already had a lot of this stuff built in. Okay. I just had to learn from her. So like, for instance, if we're driving 
and we both have kind of older cars, but it's like, oh, the car's overheating. I can smell. How do you know? I don't see it on my dial. I can smell it. Or, you know, as Kiki was talking, since I live in Florida, where I'm sorry, Colorado, I don't know why I said Florida, we'll be up in the mountains and, you know, I can smell when the brakes are burning up or usually it's the truck, but it's like, okay, we got to pull over. The brakes are getting hot. She can't do that. Right. That, that, you know, that's not something that happens all the time. That might be the thing is it's the littlest things we take for granted uh, that I can't take for granted. So she's pretty accustomed. We, we live together part-time. So she's raised a daughter. Her daughter used to be her designated sniffer. She had these things in place before I met her. So she just coaches me and okay. um, I'm like the mentor. How about you, Kiki? What, what do you do? What are some of your roles and responsibilities? Basically, I take the role of explaining hygiene in general mm. and like taking out the trash every day. Also, when Fema cooks dinner and there are leftovers, I explain to her she needs to refrigerate them because we live in Cyprus where um, perhaps nine months we have a lot of high heat, a very hot island. And uh, products fall very easily. So basically, um, I, I explained to her that she needs to check on food labels, products, and that. And uh, as far as danger is concerned, it was the initial reason she was diagnosed with anosmia. Yeah. So Sam was very aware and wise about uh, her danger. She was also away abroad for study and she came back home. She went through a lot of the journey was on her own. So I'm very proud to be her mother. A lot of anxiety on my part, but. That's true. How about you, Mark? What are your kind of your day-to-day -day responsibilities? I mean, do you both cook or you take over the cooking? You know, what other things do you do to support? We yeah. both cook. One thing I definitely do not do is it's probably more don'ts than do's uh, with okay. us. But uh, but uh, I don't. We don't typically cook or order in any Indian or Chinese cuisine anymore because we just can't. It's usually a lot of um, sauces and and mixed aromas and stuff. With garlic. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's usually always garlic, onions, and also basically yeah. anything in the Alien family, which it all includes. Um, <clears throat> and when we go out to the restaurant. It's like a lot of the time waiters and waitresses when they come to her, she's also a celiac, so she's, you know, allergic to gluten. Um, and then she has this kind of odd perosmic thing, which means you can't eat certain things. And she has to be quite particular with the waiters and waitresses, but you need to support her or support her in, in, in that context because she might feel embarrassed when she's around other people thinking they think that she's very, very picky. You have to be kind of like quite communicative to them that this is not about being picky. This is actually a, a bit of a uh, a bit of a problem that she just you know she'll throw up otherwise. So it's definitely not not something that you want to be doing. And 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 that she would actually love to be able to eat all these different things if she could. You know, so it's just about supporting her. And 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 with that, there are a lot of exercise and a lot of maybe not patience is the, probably a negative word, but a lot of empathy, you know, yeah. just the opposite side, you know, just the, just the, uh, that and hope. Um, hope. Because sometimes a time, time, it's just, these things take a lot of time. I didn't realize, but um, 
it could be years, you know, and that can be that can sound very daunting. But um, I think one thing that she has learned is that if things at least move, uh, you know, it's it's, it's that hope. Really. You almost have to, and tell me if I if I'm wrong here, but I, I work with smell trainers. I, I help people with smell training, and one of the things I tell them is, you just gotta you have to take it day by day and look for the little nuances of, of goodness, right. Yeah. In, in the everyday. And, and we used to, we always look for the big things, the big um, advancements to make. And, and really it's, it's the little things every day that push you towards the bigger thing, right. The, the bigger goal of, of being able to smell normally again. Yeah. Yeah. It's a slow. It's, it's, it's a slow slog. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. Episode 50, Making Sense of Smells with Charlie Atkins. Okay, so this one's a big one. Okay. Uh, What foods should you avoid eating at work slash heating up? Because my rule at work is hilarious because it's just no smelly foods at your desk. And I'm like, great. They don't specify. (laughs) (laughs) So... This one, um, just naturally, I can, I can just off the top of my head say some of the things that the biggest offenders are fishy smells. So anything with fish. So a lot of people I remember used to bring tuna fish sandwiches in. Um, So avoid that anything with fish. And also eggs. It's because they have a lot of sulfur compounds in them, the the odorous components of them. So, you know, yeah. So I would just you pretty much named my two favorite sandwiches. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Tuna fish and eggs, hard-boiled eggs. Like egg mayo. <laughs> oh yeah, egg mayo. There you go. Well, what can I tell you? Keep those for home. I think people might not like it so much when you bring those into work. Also, I when I'm on airplanes, sometimes now you have to bring in your own food. So people bring a lot of the fast food, the McDonald's that's at the airport, and that has a lot of grease on it. Just it's highly odorous so fast food so i would avoid bringing in fast food if possible yeah. um i don't know so what you're saying frauka is that when i as a teenager snuck kfc into my bedroom by just hiding it behind my back uh-huh. and then that didn't work you're telling me that everyone knew that i was bringing <laughs> it in <laughs> yes i will have to say that is what happened Anybody who could smell can smell that KFC. Definitely. So I wasn't being sneaky. No, didn't work. (laughs) Oh, also curries are very smelly kimchi. I don't know if people eat that a lot in the UK, but it's more, um, but those are fermented foods like broccoli, heated up broccoli and cauliflower. (laughs) You don't seem to like those anyway, but um, those are really um, raw onions another thing that really has a, a strong smell so that yeah. hopefully that gives you an idea yeah um, that that's really helpful because yeah so salads that, are that, pretty safe anything like a turkey or chicken sandwich as long as you don't have the onions or the garlic in there um, yeah pretty bland really carrots <laughs> they don't have a smell really <laughs> i don't know if you like so i'm carrots. good with my hummus and carrots that's there you good. go that's very good yeah. That's a good one. Okay. It's good. Thank you. I, I, I'm, I hope to no longer be the most ho- silently hated person in the office. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that. You should be loved. 
Episode 71, Holiday Strategies for Anosmia, Hyposmia, and Parosmia. Sometimes we also meet over the holidays at restaurants, right? <laughs> so outside of the home. So you're suddenly in a place where, you know, are you going to talk to the chef behind the, the restaurant uh, kitchen? I don't know. Is, is, how did you, how have you approached going to restaurants? Um, exactly the same. Okay. And I, I would actually phone beforehand the restaurants and give them a list of uh, the oh. things I, I do not want on my plate. Um, <laughs> and how did that, how did they respond to that? Because I'm sure they're not used to that. Right? No, no, not at all. Yes. Um, actually, very funnily, uh, I have this anecdote where, so I was in France in Brittany and I phoned, it was for my birthday. Uh, we were, we went to the restaurant with my parents and, and my partner. And I was trying to make it simple for the chef by just, I, I phoned them and say like, I know what I'll get. I get mussels with white wine and cream uh, and fries. And I know, no, I don't say no onions, no garlic, no chives, no nothing. And I'll be fine. And the owner of the restaurant um, said, yeah, can you just hold for a second? I'm going to talk to the chef. And he forgot to, well, put himself on mute, I guess. And I heard the conversation with the chef. And the chef being like a real like, true French, like, oh, if she doesn't want to eat, she should just not come to the restaurant. So then I I told, I was laughing. I, I was not really, I, I didn't feel upset. I used to feel upset about, about those experiences, but now I laugh. And I told the, the owner of the restaurant afterwards, like, just so you know, I heard your conversation with your chef. I don't think he's really happy. But just so you know, I'm not really happy about my condition either. So this is a neurological condition and I'm sorry, um, but that's it. Rather than being anxious before going to such an event where you're supposed to enjoy yourself, uh, I think it's better to prepare it and be really bold about it. Be, I, I am not scared of being blunt anymore. I just say, this is what I want and that's it. And I know that everything will be fine and I will have a good time and people around me as well, because that's the main thing. Because if I'm not having a good time, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to have to leave the table and everyone's party is going to be ruined, right? Yeah. So it's better to get prepared, I think. How about you, Anthea? I'm in awe of your boldness. And uh, um, I think I wish I would have known that 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> Yeah, then I was thinking it's it's a little bit different because it's not about the things that I can't have. It's often about the things that I want to have or there's different combinations and things. Um, so what I've often done is if, um, if there's like a menu available online, and it depends, right? So if, I, if you're going to an organized party, maybe they already give you the menu before you go. But I usually take a look online and start to kind of scout around for what, what might there be. That the might menu be options, menu. yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's, there's, there's so much guesswork and I've been disappointed so many times when I've made assumptions because sometimes they just give you the, the list of things in the dish. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, oh, this is going to be fried. This is going to be this. This is going to work great. And you get there and everything's pureed or so I've, I've got it wrong. Yeah. Loads of times. Um, but just having that look. And then the other thing is that if they can't change anything, because they're cooking, I don't know, maybe they're cooking for 100 people or it, on a holiday. Sometimes they just give you like a fixed menu and, you know, everybody has to have the same thing. Um, then I would just try and um, go for side dishes. I mean, you 
I can't beat a good uh, plate of fries with like loads of ketchup. Uh, at least that's going to give me something, you know, to make me happy or to make me feel satisfied. And then there are the things that that you can easily ask for in a restaurant, like the hot sauce or the ketchup, lemon, fresh lemon, sprinkle that on things. It kind of brings them to life, gives it a bit of extra, uh, an extra edge. Um, so I would say do your homework in advance. Yeah, call like Anders and see if you can arrange something, but then be quite specific about what you need. Because if I say I'm agnostic, it's not the same as saying, you know, I'm gluten-free or I'm vegan. I think people don't really know how to cater for that. So yeah. tell them what you need. Uh, and then I would say, yeah, last resort, you know, fries, the side dishes, and maybe a salad or something. And then ask for all the extras that will, yeah, make the food more, more enjoyable. Hey, I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about a smell training program I offer once a quarter. It's a habit-building program designed for those who've lost their sense of smell, have a very weak sense of smell, or are experiencing smell distortions. The next session starts on January 9th. It's an email-based program, so it can easily be integrated into your schedule and daily life. And importantly, it allows you to be located anywhere in the world to join. You'll get your daily email first thing in the morning. The program includes pre-program setup, support and guidance, an e-journal and workbook to record progress and stay motivated. 21 days of inspirational emails, an optional smell buddy to help keep you accountable, and three recorded motivational mindset coaching videos from me. The best part is when you sign up, you'll be invited to join future smell training sessions for ongoing support and motivation for free. My treat. So if you or someone you know has lost their sense of smell, has a weak sense of smell, or even smell distortions, and you're finding it difficult to stay consistent with your smell training, I invite you to check out my habit building program by going to the link in the episode notes. Episode 66, The Language of Scent with Sarah McCartney. We did a workshop once for people who were writing in 11 different languages wow. trying to get people to write uh, our, our tone of voice I defined it as this like it's like having a chat with a customer who's asked you a question uh-huh so if somebody's come up and said oh what, what does that one smell like then how do you describe it? Okay, fine. They can probably pick it up and they can smell it. But um, if they couldn't be there and if they rang you up and said, what's it like? Should I have this one or this one? He said, wow, okay, this one is a bit more like if you're in a flower shop and you're trying to smell the flowers, but they don't really have as much smell as you were expecting. But when they cut the stems, it's sort of all green. That one smells a bit like that. So you try to put people in a situation where they might vaguely be able to conjure up that kind of expectation of an aroma or a, a feeling that you're going to get from it. So it's, this is the kind of thing that you'd imagine if your grandma had taken her best bottle of perfume out of the drawer and put that on, but then she'd gone and peeled a couple of oranges and it's mixed with it. So situations in which people can put themselves and say, Oh, oh, you know what? It does smell a bit like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Plus, otherwise, it's quite hard for people to pick out. If, if an aroma's done well, if, if a fragrance is done well, you shouldn't really all the time be able to pick out obvious bits and pieces from it. Yeah. There's a bit of an obsession these days with the, what's the notes list? Oh, and you get all yeah. these names of scents. Yes. And people 
read that and half of them they don't know what they would smell like even if they did exactly yeah and the other half was made up because there isn't an actual version of it so exactly yeah their notes list to my favorite bet noir i think take more than written up to shreds (laughs) it's true but i think people could really learn if anybody who's listening sells essential oils for instance or you know has a, a shop online um, because nobody's smelling the essences of the, the essential oils online. Um, I think there's a real opportunity because I see them online and they're just such small descriptions, such standard descriptions. And if you, you'd be surprised yeah. how many people don't know what things really smell like in real life. And I think they could really use yeah. more elaborate language around even the most basic smells. Yeah, I think so. Just by painting a little bit of a picture, you know, yeah. the kind of place that you would smell this would be. I mean, there's a musk that you and I probably know, but most people will never have heard of. And it's called Aurelione. Mm-hmm. And it smells like walking into a charity shop. It <laughs> smells like it smells like a goodwill like, for us here in the US. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks. It's, they're clean clothes, but they've been hanging about in the back, probably a wooden wardrobe for a number of years. Yeah. They've come out and all together, that smell when you walk in, it's like, yes, yeah. they have acquired a certain, and Aurelio Musk smells just like that. Yeah. And I used it recently in an event with the Corto Gallery on a Manet painting. And my hero, Jeremy Della, the artist, was in there and I gave him the strip and he went, charity shops. <laughs> and I thought, yes, yes you, are, yeah. you know, yeah. and yet you're never going to get written on a label, a notes list somewhere. This has a bottom, you know, a, a heart note of charity shop. Um, <laughs> it, it's not going to happen. Um, uh, but yes, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a cat that's been out rolling in a little bit of mud. Smells a bit like that. Um, some of the descriptions I would use are not necessarily the most beautiful. Well, they're, they're entertaining, but they might not make people want to buy something. Yeah, yeah. Well, entertainment. And that's goes the other thing, it. of course. Yeah, there's the are you trying to just describe it or are you trying to sell it? That's, that's maybe two different things. You're right. You're right. So if somebody was trying to describe it, not necessarily sell it, but for your everyday person, because I'm trying to also get people to use language a little bit more. Um, yes. Also, I mean, for a selfish reason, also to help people who can't smell so that they can have the experience in a different way. So I try to get people to use it with the other senses. So I'm, I'm always trying yes. to use language with their other four senses. But how would you, what, do you have any advice since you are so, you know, you've done, you did it for 14 years and you continue to do it. So how to describe smells. Yes. Um, Just, first of all, just to allow the mind to wander to the place that this thing takes you. Yeah. As simple as that. What is it at that place? In fact, we, um, okay, slight plug. I do have a YouTube channel in which Arthur, who comes here and bottles sometimes and films, we just chat about smells and the places that they take us to. And when we're exploring new materials, like, oh, well, that one, I've got six new citrus fruits to smell when he's in next. Like, 
But this one is, it is like an orange, but it's like an orange if it's been sitting in the fridge a little bit too long next to the yogurt or, you know, just <laughs> something yeah. okay, that, that it's, it's picked up something and it's thought you, you brought it to work in your bag today and you'd accidentally spilled some perfume last week. So it smells a little bit more vanilla-y than it should. So just those adventures, not worrying about... You know the the industry style of glamour yes. and mystique and all that. So, it's like, what's it really smell like? Yeah. Um, that just just stopping and thinking and letting your mind take you to where it goes. Episode sixty eight, scent and fiction with author Erica Bauermeister. I vividly remember reading the um, Patrick Patrick Suskind's book, Perfume Story yes. of Murder. And being gobsmacked by his writing, just his ability to encapsulate a smell in words. It was so sensual. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of killing virgins in order to create a perfume. Right. I, I, I don't need to go there. But the rest of it, his writing was extraordinary. And I kept thinking, I want to do that. I want to make the world feel that three-dimensional. And... And that was just sort of sitting in the back of my head for a long time. It was just sort of, that's a goal, right? I would like to be able to do that. And I read Diane Ackerman's Natural History of the Senses, which yes. is an extraordinary book as well. And she's the queen of metaphors. Yes. Um, she could just, and, and I probably read that book four times while I was writing my first books, just because anytime I would feel like I was getting too much in my head and I needed to get back in my body and be using my senses in my writing, um, because you're right, most writers use vision and that's it. And yeah. I was determined not to do that. And I would go back and read her book again. And it would just kind of get me in the right mood. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it is, was backwards because what happened was we lived in Italy. I took cooking classes there, returned home in 1999. The food thing, it's hard to imagine, but back then it wasn't as big of a deal. Yeah. And, you know, I missed my people, you know, <laughs> so I took a cooking class. And um, we killed crabs with our bare hands because this is the Pacific Northwest and we do things like that, except I had never done anything like that. I did not anticipate doing anything like that. It was visceral, it was intimate, it was weird. And I was doing it with a group of strangers. And I just got this idea for this book. What would it be like if you took eight strangers and kept them together in a cooking class for say eight months? And what would happen? And what would be the food that would affect each one of these people um, in their own way. So I always say I got shocked into fiction. So it that crab, killing crabs changed my life, but how might it change someone else's? So in School of Essential Ingredients, that same activity changes the life of a young mother um, who, and it's it's weird to connect motherhood and violence, but it did and it worked. And um, and then other people needed other foods. And, and so because the food was so critical to their character development, you know, it's the widower who has to learn how to make pasta uh, because that's another event like caretaking a dying spouse that requires a lot of time and effort and love. And yet then at the end of the night, it's gone. And you can see that as a loss or you can see that as a gift. And yeah. so, but it had to come through the act of making the pasta. I, I mean, I couldn't just sit there and say, it's important what he did. It's a, that, that's not fiction, that's not literature. So I needed to inhabit that pasta making 
And that requires all your senses. And so, again, I didn't set out to do it. With Scentkeeper then, I set out to do it. I, I had written the, the perfume matcher in Joy for Beginners. I wasn't done with the topic. That was kind of a short story. And I was fascinated by the idea of what would it be like to grow up with smell as your default sense? You, know, you still have all five senses, but smell is the go-to, the first one. And how would, what would our world look like to a kid that was raised that way? How weird and, and blinded must we appear to someone who has the full use of that faculty? Episode 69, Connecting with Aromatic Plants with Jade Shoots. Where do you think people should start with, uh, with growing aromatic plants if they want to get to know? <laughs> get yeah, no, and, and you do have to make it relevant to where you're, you're living, yeah. you know, like find either go to a botanical garden if, if there's one in your area and start looking at, you know, like go to the, the most botanical gardens will have a herb, you know, section. So you can mm -hmm. see some of the herbs. They're, those are usually they can pretty much, uh, many of them can grow just about anywhere. Um, maybe Even in not, a pot, right? If you only have and, a balcony. In a pot, exactly. <laughs> right. In fact, with, with the like things like mint, you want to grow them in a pot right. because you don't want to put them in the ground. So yeah, like mint is a good one. Spearmint, peppermint. And, you know, it reminds me too, like thinking like, yeah, spearmint, peppermint, geranium is really easy to grow in a pot during the summer months. You can even bring it in over if you, you get winter cold, mm -hmm. you know, bring it in, it will survive and then put it out the next spring. Um, but to start with the commonly that go to the garden center and see what aromatic plants they're selling, Do you know, because what they're selling is going to be what grows in that area. I know in the United States, it seems like, at least in the places I've lived, be it Seattle or here in uh, Virginia or North Carolina, a lot of garden centers will sell um you know, plants that are indigenous or, or native rather to that yes. area. So look for those plants and many of them are aromatic. I mean, you know, there's so many aromatic plants or like if you're lucky enough to live in a place, you can grow rose without spraying it with a lot yeah. of pesticides, you know, grow rose. And, and grow uh, the aromatic roses. There are a lot of them that aren't even aromatic these days. Exactly. <laughs> That's what exactly. drives me nuts. I smell so many roses and I'm like, I don't there's not much I, smell here. Where's the I scent? I know. I know. You so know, many hybrids. Like, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. When I lived in Seattle, I grew a lot of like uh, cultivated roses. Like I remember I had one that was a yellow rose and it was called Toulouse-Lautrec. It was just like <laughs> the most beautiful aroma. It was, yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, that, 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 you know, the rose, there's a whole history. I'm sure you probably talked about it with someone, but <laughs> whole history of how it went from being this aromatic plant to representing, you know, the age of reason where it became about form and function. And that's when, you know, the aroma became less valued and it was yeah. about how the rose looked, right? You see these like perfect roses. And then a lot of times these days I see like even the color, it's like, that's not a natural color for a flower. Right. You know? It's like they're manipulating even the color and it's so unnatural. It's like, you know, there's no green in nature that looks that green. There's no orange mm -hmm. or pink, you know, it's like, so not only are they playing with the scent, they're playing with the color and how it looks. 
Right. Uh, it's so yeah. depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I mean, yeah, definitely don't give me roses that have no scent. Episode 67, Death and Olfaction with Nuri McBride. So one of the things that I think makes people really um, frightened to talk, and there is an, an element of fear, and I don't think that should be discredited, but people are frightened to, to talk about death and dying because they you know, oh, I'm going to be a bummer, I'm going to upset people, um, I, or they don't even want to think about themselves because it's like, oh, it's just going to make me sad. Uh, but the reality is, is that when you really delve into this and, and do work in this space, um, it gives you such an appreciation for life. Yeah. Uh, what I what I do with working for the Hebra Kadisha, you know, I, I mostly prepare bodies. So, you know, we're going in, it's a group of three people. We take it very seriously. We work in silence. Uh, we all know what we're, besides the prayers, we all know what we're doing. Um, it's a, a very grave, very focused, very intentional time that we spend with this body, collecting them, washing them, shrouding them. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's powerful. I can't yeah, describe yeah. it, but that it's, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And uh, when we're finished, we usually go to the mikvah, which is this, uh, it's a religious bath. Because uh, we're, it's, it's hard to explain, but we're not, we're not physically dirty, but this idea of like, you got to wash this off. Yeah, uh, you you gotta you you you've seen you've you've looked into the face of the abyss. You gotta wash this off. Yeah. So you go in, you, you get all naked, you you plop down in this water. A lady goes kosher uh, <laughs> to say that to say that you did it right because this is this is how this world works. But for me, one of the greatest moments of life is walking out of that mikvah because I've looked death in the face. I may have sat with this person why they died. I, I was there for them in that moment. I, I fully embraced the gravity of the situation. And now I'm re-entering the world and the world of the living. I've been in the world of the dead and now I'm in the world of the living and the sun is brighter and the flowers are more beautiful and things smell better because I don't have forever. Yeah. This person thought they had today and they didn't. So this is what we have. We ha we're, you know, and I think Neil Gaiman said it the best. We're given a lifetime, no more and no less. Yes. But we don't know the length of that lifetime. So, you know, you when you come to terms with this, you realize that, you know, time time is short. Time is short for all of us. If we live a hundred years, seventy years, if we live twenty years, um, so there is there is this reminder not of a fear of time but the reminder that there is a brevity to that time and there should be an immediacy of pleasure because why are we here, but to be kind to each other and to love each other and to create beauty in the world and to appreciate beauty in the to world. To experience life. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we all have to face hardships and troubles and we'll, you know, no matter how privileged a person's life is, there, there will be pain in that life that's part of living but uh if we have these moments these little tender moments you know the kind of proustian moments with the with the madeleine um of of finding joy and pleasure then then you should take them with all the gusto that you have in the world because it won't be there forever 
there'll be a day when there isn't any more Madeleines. There'll be a day when there isn't any more baby soft for me to spray all over myself and be this baby. Yeah. Uh, there'll yeah. be a day that that ends. So you have to embrace that with gusto. And, you know, it, it's hard to find the beauty of life if you're like, I'll be a permanent teenager forever and I'm never going to get old and la, 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 you know. It, it can become monotonous and, and lose meaning and focus if you yeah. don't have this, the reality. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, the brevity of time and the immediacy of pleasure. That's, I cannot say that enough. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's beautiful. And what connects scent to me there is that when you smell something, you're in that moment. You're in, yeah. you're present, just like when you're saying, you know, the brevity of time and enjoy the here and now, what better way to do it than through scent, because you're actually literally being forced to, to experience the present moment. Yeah, I see sort of intentionally man-made fragrances, whether we're talking about incense or perfume or what have you, um, as a form of adornment of time, that we, we're adorning time, that we're decorating time the way we want to decorate our bodies, we want to decorate our homes, we want to decorate time. You know, we have, uh, when we see how scent is used in, uh, in sacred rituals, uh, it's about creating space and saying this space and this time is special. And you know it's special because we're burning frankincense, right? So it's made this new environment and you're here now and you're present in it now. So you're, you're part of this decoration. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes uh, uh, fragrance become, I, I, I get kind of weirded out about people seeing it as an art. I, I'm kind of on the fence about the kind of art side of perfume, but it is definitely a form of adornment. Okay. Um, and that's something I really love. Episode 42, Scent and Palliative and End-of-Life Care with Madeline Kirkhoff. We know that from, from research, actually, there was a study from, I don't remember his name now, that's what, that's what I said, I don't, I'm not <laughs> it's okay. but it's a study uh, from uh, researchers in 2014, uh, because I'm an expert also in dementia care and scent. Yep, we'll talk and, about that too, I want to do that stuff. Yeah, but anyway, so he says that, or they say that uh, even when people cannot or not very well smell a particular uh, sort of fragrance that that doesn't mean that their sense of well-being may not be affected hmm. and so that is very interesting because um, there are doctors who are not necessarily aromatherapists or rather are not aromatherapists that say oh it's useless to use a scent or essential oils for people with dementia because they have a lack of smelling ability and so why would you do that and so this study uh, is uh, actually confirming what, what I have seen in patients with uh, dementia, is that the influence of scent is not necessarily connected with the conscience, the conscience being aware that's right. of, of the scent. And so that's really interesting. And so in a few weeks time, I will give a workshop to um, uh, people that are in elderly care, uh -huh. uh, but they are not nurses or nurses aides. They are, how do you say, like social workers yes. that yes. offer activities okay. uh, to the elderly and people with dementia. And there we use scent, which is connected to their past, 
like uh, for me it would be cloves and cinnamon and mandarin and sweet orange and to people in india maybe turmeric and ginger sure. and so which resonates with them and if you connect the the olfactory cues to the visual cues and verbal cues it even works better and there's quite a bit of research that confirms that so it's really interesting that even when people cannot smell very well that if you if you say what kind of smell it is to them and even when people have dementia it's the tone and it's your words that you're using uh, to make the connection with them mm -hmm. or you show them a picture of let's say a lavender field and you have them smell this lavender even co2 maybe and that's when it resonates possibly with them maybe somewhere in their brain there's a little drawer that yeah. opens yeah. with all those memories isn't that wonderful i know we have these little drawers it's wonderful yeah we have them we yeah. have them and so with people that have no cognitive impairments of course you can talk about it with them right so the first thing i ask uh after the question are you allergic to anything do you have a sensitive skin or sensitive respiratory tract or whatever all about safety yeah yeah i will ask them are there any fragrances which you do not like that's yes, my first so question. important it's right right that so step should always be question number one yes do you not yes. Like? yes and then i would ask are there any fragrances which you do like uh or can i connect any fragrance to uh, an experience which you may have had like on a holiday or what kind of what kind of environment do you relax in do you like going near the seaside or the forest what kind of forest um so all this uh, this is a really nice little talk you can have with people you get to know someone that way yeah, yeah you get to know that someone and then you can if you have a training of course you need to have some training uh, then you possibly can connect a certain fragrance or a certain group of fragrances to those uh, experiences which which resonate with them and that of course for anxiety for insecurity for a sense of being lost and being a sense of being disconnected from the world which they are going to be in the end uh, so you can really do so much for their well-being and not only to theirs. Okay. It's also the family members. Episode 54, The Brain and Olfaction with Professor James Goodwin. Well, well, humans evolved in Africa. If we go to Africa, especially East Africa, we're going home, everybody, don't care who you are. You're going home because that's where it all started. Yeah. But humans emigrated due to climate change out of Africa. Most of the time Earth's been glacial, very, very cold. 85% of its history, it's been frozen, glacial, only 15% interglacial. Well, when global warming started happening, which is essential for life on Earth, humans spread from Africa, first of all into Asia, and then into Europe. And then about 10,000 years ago, the climate really got warmer and we, we moved from being hunter-gatherers to being farmers. Right. And we domesticated animals. Yes. And because we domesticated animals and our food source became more secure, we prospered. And human society developed enormously and our health vastly improved through farming animals. Now... Pigs in particular have been a staple diet across the world for thousands of years. And they, they 
form a compound called androstenone. Androstenone makes pork taste bad. Oh. Because it was in uncastrated animals. Now the European Union wants to uh, stop the castration of pigs for, um, for animals' rights or ethical reasons, but they're worried that that will make the, the pork taste bad because an uncastrated boar will produce smelly pork. So how can uh, we the pig and ate it? Right? In our evolutionary journey, we became far, pig farmers and this is enormously helpful to society. How can we do that if it smells bad? Because a mutation arose as we made that trek from Africa to Asia to Europe, which removed the sense of smell for androstenone. So therefore we ate pigs and prospered. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. You heard it here. I did not know what that. A great, what a great story. Yes, that's the fascinating and, you know, um, I, I mean, I could talk about diet and brain health. We won't because we're here to talk about food. But diet is enormously important to the evolution of the brain. And the brain evolved to the size that it did because we came out of the trees and we moved from scavenging to hunter-gathering. And the development of the brain was entirely dependent upon two things. Number one, eating meat or fish. Mm-hmm. Number two, cooking. Ah. Uh, uh, well, cooking was... How else did evolution help to develop our smell? One, we became bipedal. We stood on two legs. Right. We went from being a few feet off the ground to being six feet off the ground. What does that do? Put us our noses into the wind. That's right. Yeah. And what carries what's carrying the wind? Smell. So bipedalism improved our survival because it generated a better sense of smell. People will tell you this, right? It's buried in arcane books. We need to bring those out. We need to let everybody know. <laughs> yeah, but two million years ago, not only did cooking help to develop the size of the brain, but it also exposed us to the aromatics of animals and plants that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had exposure to unless we'd have cooked them. That's right. Because th- think about the role of aromatics and flavor and all that that odor molecules contribute industry now yeah it's a whole industry what do people enjoy most in life good food good wine whatever food you choose to eat or whatever wine you choose to drink it's those sumptuous smells which actually generate our appetite uh, yes yes our appetite too literally right i mean the the saliva is generated yeah but appetite depends upon smell and one thing in particular, and men, many vegetarians or vegans don't appreciate this, but the scientific truth is that the smell of blood improves the appetite for all food, including plants. Wow. Now, they've proven that because they've, 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 expo- they've done the experiments and they've exposed people to um, plain water and plain water with the aromatics of blood in there that, that you can't. You can't detect it. You can't say, oh, I think there's blood in there. Uh, it's all you can't, right? But all those people who smell the water with the blood in, their appetites improved. That's way, way back evolutionary stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, what made humans the most successful man on the planet? On the planet? Fighting? Yeah. Had to fight to defend ourselves against other animals and against other humans. Yes. 
fighting and hunting. And it's embedded in the brain. It's been there for 1.5 million years. And I'm sorry if it offends anybody, but it's there now and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't uncook what's being cooked. You can't untoast what's being toasted. Yeah, it's part of evolution, as you're saying, yeah. Yeah, it is. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.